As we're drawing near to Christmas, which obviously, again, is coming up this week, there are two things I'd like to point out for us this morning. One is a very common misconception about Christ's birth, and the other one is a rock-solid truth that we can really build our lives on. First of all, the misconception. The misconception is this idea that Jesus was supposedly born on December 25th of the year zero. That's not true. First of all, there was never a year zero. Uh, If you look at our Gregorian calendar, which is the calendar system that we use, uh, you go from 1 B.C. to 1 A.D. There was never a year zero. And although B.C. literally stands for before Christ, it's kind of ironic that Jesus was actually born probably somewhere around 4 B.C. And so, so Jesus was not born in the year zero. And also in terms of the actual date of his birth, we really aren't sure what it is. Um, scholars kind of toss around all these different ideas of when may Jesus have been born during the calendar year, but we aren't quite sure. I mean, there are a lot of speculations, a lot of different things thrown out there. December 25th is perhaps one potential, um, but we don't really know. And one of the reasons is because for hundreds of years after the time of Christ, and even during his lifetime, people really didn't care that much about the celebration of birthdays. I mean, there are other special days to celebrate, but birthdays generally weren't one of those things. And you may find this kind of disconcerting because, you know, on this Wednesday, we're going to celebrate supposedly the, the birthday of Jesus. We don't know exactly when the original birthday was, but what we do know, one of the things we know is that Jesus really did live. And if he lived, that means he was born at some point. And so, so it's not very disconcerting to me that we don't know the exact day that he was born because we can look at his life and, and know what he did. And that leads me to the second thing that was, the second point I want to make, which is a, a rock-solid truth, which is that the birth of Jesus is one of the most uh, amazing events that's ever taken place in human history. I think the only things that rival that also take place in Jesus' life in terms of his death on our behalf and his resurrection. And really, they're all tied up together because Jesus could never have had a death or a resurrection had he never been born in the first place. I don't want to put his birth on a pedestal above those other things, but they all really go together. And like I said, Jesus' birth is one of the most amazing things that's ever happened. And I want to take some time today to dig into why is the birth of Jesus Christ so incredibly amazing. I invite you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 1. Uh, John 1, we are continuing our series called Christmas Defined. And in this series, each week we're taking one key word from the Christmas stories uh, contained in Scripture, and we're using that key word each week to help us gain clarity on what the real meaning of Christmas is all about. The first week we looked at the word fullness in terms of in the fullness of time God sent his Son to the world. Last week we looked at the name Jesus, because the name Jesus is a really rich, powerful name that literally means the Lord saves. And so the name Jesus refers to how Jesus came to save his people from their sins. And now today we're looking at the word dwelled, how Jesus came and dwelled among us. And so I'm going to pray for us and we're going to dig into this passage Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to dwell among us. And I pray today as we open the scripture that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear what the significance of that reality is. May we not just, uh, just pass off the Christmas story as something that's a fable. May we not just pass it off as something that we've heard many times before so we th- feel like we know it all. But I pray that you will bring it alive in fresh ways to us today in Jesus' name. 
Amen. So we're really focusing in on one verse today, although we will be pulling in other passages. And the verse is John chapter 1, verse 14. John writes there, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Now that is an incredibly rich verse. Some, some scholars say it's perhaps the most rich and profound verse in all of Scripture. And, and, and I want to really dig into it. We're focusing in especially on the idea of he made his dwelling among us. But first we're going to look at some background that comes from within John 1.14. And it says the word became flesh. And you may be wondering, okay, what's this talking about? What's this word? Well, the word is referring to the Son of God. Now, I think we're all familiar with the reality that we all have various titles that can describe who we are. For instance, for myself, kind of my basic name is Brandon. That's the main name that people refer to me by. But I also have other titles because my kids generally don't refer to me as Brandon, although Micaiah will sometimes when he's making a joke. Um, but in general, uh, my kids call me Daddy. That's, that's a very appropriate title for me. Now, a lot of people here in the church and even around this county refer to me as Pastor or Pastor Brandon. That's another appropriate title. Uh, when I was in college, a lot of times when I'd be playing pickup games of basketball, people would call me Lemons because that's my last name. That's the common thing to do in sports is call each other by your last name. I, I've had nicknames at various times through my life. For instance, when I worked at the Landscape Supply Company uh, in each summer of my seminary years, I, I went, people called me Bronco. At least my coworkers did. I answered to that. Um, Shelly, my wife, if she introduces me to someone who I've never met before, she'll probably say something like, this is my husband, Brandon. That's another title. I have other people in my life who refer to me as their son or as their brother or simply as their friend. See, we all have these various titles that all describe who we are from various aspects. And the Son of God was the same way that he had various titles to describe him. And one of them that we see here is the title, The Word. And to understand the significance of this, we need to back up to the first couple of verses of, uh, that John wrote in this biography of Jesus, when he said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So we see here, John is writing about this, this title, the Word, to refer to God the Son. And the word that John is using here for word is the Greek word logos, which is used in the same way that we use the term word today. A word is something that you use to communicate. It's a tool that helps you to express what is going on inside of you. I mean, I've never met anyone who can really read people's minds. I mean, in order to, for people to understand what's going on inside of our minds, we have to communicate it in words in one form or another. I think of last night. Uh, we had just finished supper and our doorbell rang. There was this random guy at the door. I'd never met him before. Probably never meet him again. Uh, but this guy at the door, and it became apparent very quickly that he had some sort of impediment of his speech and his hearing. Because, um, I mean, the first few seconds were a bit awkward because... We really weren't communicating very well. Um, but then he pulled out his smartphone and started typing some stuff on there and held it up for me to read. And then I typed a response. And so this, we had this conversation going back and forth for about 10 minutes by our back door just on a smartphone. And it shows you need words to really have the highest forms of communication. The words 
may be verbal speech. It may be written. It may be through sign language. But you need words to really communicate fully what you are thinking, what your intentions are. And that's some of the background behind that word logos that, that, that John is using here. The, he's referring here to the word as far as a title for Jesus Christ, a title for the Son of God. And we know that one of the reasons that, that John uses this is because he wants to make it very clear that through Jesus, God is speaking to the world. I think of Hebrews chapter 1. Um, Hebrews 1 says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So we see here that, that God has spoken to us in this world. In the past, this author of Hebrews says that God spoke through prophets, and he spoke through Scripture. But now, God has spoken to us through his Son. And there's something else really interesting to note here, that both in Hebrews 1 and in John 1, there's a reference to the Son of God being instrumental in helping create the world. When John began his gospel um, by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, I don't think he was just pulling that, that terminology out of thin air, especially this idea of in the beginning. I am convinced that what he had in mind was Genesis 1, the creation account. John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you look throughout Genesis 1 and the creation account at how God created the heavens and the earth. He simply spoke, and the universe came into existence. The phrase that repeats throughout Genesis 1 is it says, And God said, let there be light. And God said, let the waters teem with living creatures. And God said, let us make man in our image. You see, God spoke words, and the universe came into existence. Words are God's way of communicating. The living word, Jesus Christ, is God's supreme way of communicating with us. We use words to communicate, so does God. Well, now one more passage of Scripture before we move on. Uh, Colossians chapter 1. We already heard part of this passage earlier today. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 15, it says, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, invisible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. So this is a really rich passage about Christ. And we see in here that, that Christ was instrumental in creating everything. It says everything that exists was created by him, whether in, in the heavens or here on earth. We also see, though, reference uh, to, uh, to the fact that, that Jesus was God in bodily form. For in him all the fullness of the deity lived. And we see here that he is to have the supremacy. That means that he is worthy of all the praise and the glory and the honor in this entire universe. 
And so that's who the Word of God is, Jesus Christ, the living Word. And, and John says back in verse 14, the Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. What this is talking about is, is technically known as the incarnation. Incarnation is this fancy word. It comes from a Latin phrase that means taking on flesh. The Latin word for, for flesh or for meat is literally the word carne. Uh, if you, for instance, go to a restaurant and order chili con carne, you're ordering chili with meat. And so, so Jesus was essentially God con carne. God with some meat or some flesh on the bones. He was God here in human form. And, I mean, it's really remarkable when you think about that reality. I mean, it's mind-boggling to think about how God conceived a child in the Virgin Mary's womb. And that child was 100% God, 100% man. It's simply astounding when you really think about that. And it's really life-changing. It's world-changing when you come to grips with that reality. Many of you are probably familiar with Larry King. He had a talk show on CNN for about 25 years, the Larry King Live Show. And he's interviewed all kinds of people through history, but he's interviewed quite a few Christians. It's really interesting to see a couple of common themes in, in a significant percentage of his interviews with Christians. One of the themes is that when he's interviewing someone who's known to be a Christian, oftentimes he will kind of lean over on his desk, as you see in that picture there. He'll look at them and say, so do you really mean to say that you fully believe that, that Jesus is the one and the only way to God? He, he'll ask that question oh, um, to people he knows are Christians just to kind of put them on the spot, see how they're going to respond. But the second very interesting common theme in these conversations with, with Christians comes up in a variety of different ways, different terminology, but it's all communicating the same basic thing. For instance, Sometimes Larry King will say, you know, I would love to meet Mary someday. And Mary, mother of Jesus, and just ask her one question. Ask her, was there really a virgin birth or was there a man involved in it? A different time, um, Larry King was being interviewed by someone else. And, and that person asked Larry, okay, you've interviewed all these people. If you could look down across human history and interview anyone that you wanted to, who would you interview? In that case, he said, I would interview Jesus Christ. Okay, what, what would be one question that you would ask Jesus? Here's what his response is. He said, he would ask Jesus, were you really born of a virgin? And Larry King went on to say, the answer to that question would define history for me. You see, there's this common theme. I mean, he's, he's asking the question in a variety of different ways, sometimes of Mary, sometimes of Jesus. But the common theme is he's wondering about this virgin birth because he knows that if Mary is really a virgin, when she conceived uh, and gave birth to Jesus, it changes everything. Because then Jesus is not merely a normal human being. He's not merely a great teacher. He is actually the Son of God here on earth. God in human form. God concurrently. God, the Word, made flesh. So it changes everything. I, I, I don't know a lot about where Larry King is spiritually. I don't have the sense that he is a follower of Christ. But I did read really an interesting discussion between him and a Christian man named Ravi Zacharias. Ravi Zacharias has written a bunch of books defending Christianity. And he has a mutual friend with Larry King. And he sent word through this mutual friend that he was going to reference uh, these statements that Larry King had made about, about the virgin birth. And, and Larry King said, yeah, that's fine. But I do want you to know that I'm not being facetious 
when I say those things. I'm not making a joke. I'm not making light of it. To me, I'm completely serious here that, that if Jesus was really born the way the Bible depicts, it really does change everything. Because then Jesus, again, is not just a human teacher. He's God here in human form. And that gives him an unparalleled authority. I want to read a passage that we read last week that really, it tells a Christmas story. I'm going to go a little bit farther than we did last week. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child, and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel which means God with us. So we see that in Jesus, it's, it's God literally with human beings in human form. The Word became flesh, and He made His dwelling among us. And now I want to transfer our attention to that phrase of He made His dwelling among us. That's, that brings us to our key word for today. Uh, the word for made His dwelling is the Greek word skenao. Skenao is a word that means to set up a tent or to tabernacle somewhere. This is a word that has very rich meaning for people who live back in that culture in which Jesus lived and in which John was writing. Because what that would recall in their minds is the Old Testament tabernacle. How up until the time when King Solomon built the temple, so for hundreds of years, there was this tabernacle that's like this huge tent structure that was built to represent the very presence of God among his people. And the tabernacle had a lot of symbolic parts of it. For instance, you had an altar um, in, in the tabernacle on which to offer animal sacrifices. And that was a, a way of showing that, that without the shedding of blood, there was no remission of sins. And that was a precursor to Christ shedding his blood on the cross on our behalf. There was a wash basin there that the priests would use to wash themselves before they went to do, the, do their priestly service. And the reason that wash basin was there for them to wash themselves was to show the, 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 the significance of entering the presence of a holy God, that you should not do it with uncleanness, but it's symbolically showing you need to be clean to enter the presence of God. There was incense that was constantly being burned there. And then as the incense went up into the sky... It was a visual reminder and symbolism of the prayers of the people of God going up into the sky. There was this, this structure called the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. You see it there. It's that covered part. That's seen as the most intimate, powerful presence of God here on this earth. I mean, you, you see it by the, the regulations around it, how only one person could go in the most holy place, the most high priest, or the high priest, and he could only go in there once a year and with special regulations. But this whole tabernacle structure was meant to be a physical uh, symbol of the presence of God among his people. And so here, here is John coming back here and saying, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling, or he tabernacled among us. 
Let me take you back to Exodus chapter 25. We're going to spend a little bit of time back in the book of Exodus because that's where the original tabernacle came about. Exodus 25 verses 8 and 9, God tells Moses, Have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So God gives instructions for building this tabernacle structure, and he says that, that he will dwell there among those people in this tabernacle. And this is the reference that John is making about Jesus, that when Jesus came, he essentially is tabernacling among us to be the very presence of God, literally, in our midst. Now, it goes even deeper than that. Over in Exodus chapter 40, after the tabernacle has been completed, listen to what takes place then. It says, verse 33, Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and the altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. So the tabernacle now, for the first time, has been erected. Verse 34, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So we see this reference to the glory of the Lord that, that when the tabernacle was there and God wanted to make his presence very visible and very evident to everyone around, he made his glory visible in the form of a, a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire depending on whether it's night or day. And it was a very radiant uh, glory that he was manifesting there. And, and it, it was, there was a definite intimidation factor. Because it says Moses could not go in there when the glory of the Lord was shining over the tabernacle because of the intimate presence of God there. We see other times in the Old Testament as well where this glory of the Lord is shining over the tabernacle. And it may even freak people out at times because they sense the, the nearness and the, the holiness of God. For instance, a few years after this, you have Caleb and Joshua, two men who, among others, are sent to, to scope out the promised land to see, okay, what, how are we going to take this land? Um, and all the ten other spies came back and said, you know what? It's too scary. We can't go. Caleb and Joshua said, no, we can do it with God's help. The nation of Israel did not like what Caleb and Joshua were saying. They were going to stone them and kill them. But then... The glory of the Lord came down upon the tabernacle, and it caught everyone's attention. It, it, it scared them. And then they realized, you know what? Caleb and Joshua were right uh, in what they were saying. And so, so we see again the glory of the Lord settling on the tabernacle, and, and it creates this intimidation factor just because of who God is. We see another instance, Exodus 33, not directly pertaining to the tabernacle, but, but there Moses asks if God if he can see his glory. God says, no, you can't see my glory. Moses keeps begging him, and God finally says, okay, I'm going to put you in this little corner of this rock, and then you're not going to be able to see my glory directly, but you'll be able to see the aftermath of it after I pass by. Just see a little tiny glimpse of it. Because then as now, us as broken, sinful human beings, none of us can stand in God's holiness and his glory in the presence of that. And so, so God passes by and Moses get, catches just a little glimpse of that glory. But here we come back to John chapter 1, verse 14. It says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling, or he tabernacled among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we see here that Jesus displays 
God's glory. I mean, to me, it's just so interesting to see this, this historical background behind why, why John is writing what he's writing. He's essentially saying, okay, back then, the tabernacle represented the presence of God among his people. Now, we have Jesus, the very presence of God in our midst. He's tabernacling among us, and God's glory is upon him. He is radiating God's glory, but not in a fearful way. But we see God's glory coming through Jesus in a little bit of a different way through the glory of his graciousness and his mercy. Through the ministry of Jesus, we see God's glory shining through, for instance, in the woman at the well, about how he offers grace and forgiveness and eternal life to the woman at the well. Same with the woman caught in adultery in John's, John chapters 7 and 8. We see the glory of God radiating through Jesus as he is weeping with, with Mary and Martha at the death of their friend Lazarus, or at the death of their brother Lazarus. But we also see the glory of God when Jesus says in that same instance, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And then he calls out to Lazarus, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus is resurrected. It's the glory of God radiating through Christ. Throughout the Gospel of John, John is making it clear that, that Jesus' greatest glory is seen when he goes to the cross. I mean, it's, it's a paradox. That, and Jesus' greatest um, show of essentially sort of weakness, of appearing to be defeated, but he's actually gaining the victory. He's being glorified through that. And so we see that Jesus is displaying God's glory. And I, I don't know about you, but I'm very thankful that his glory is shown through grace and not through acts of, of great holiness and power. He is holy. I'm thankful for his grace because last week we did an exercise here where you had a sheet of paper and you had all these sins and you're asked to circle everyone that characterizes you in the past or the present. It's a very convicting thing to do that. I'm thankful that we have a God of grace. And John makes that very clear when he says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus perfectly balances grace on one hand with truth on the other hand. Too much truth, you're going to be crushed. Too much in terms of, of the truthfulness of our sin and our brokenness and God's holiness. But, but if we have all grace and mercy, you aren't calling people to repent from your sin. And so Jesus balances that. And actually even this is a reference back to this Old Testament stuff we've been talking about. Because in Exodus 33, just after God makes his glory um, apparent in a certain way to Moses, listen to what God then says to Moses in Exodus chapter 33. He says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, wickedness and rebellion and sin, this is a phrase that is used many, many times throughout the Old Testament about the, lowest, the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, uh, rich in, in this love and faithfulness. And, and this word for love here, when it says the Lord is abounding in love and faithfulness, the word for love there is the Hebrew word hesed. It's a very, very rich word that speaks of rich, deep, uh, unconditional, covenantal, gracious, merciful love that God has for his people. And so when John was, was, trans, was putting this word grace here in John 1.14, I think he had in mind that word hesed that comes from, from right here about the Lord is abounding in love. 
And this word faithfulness, another way to translate that is, is truthfulness or truth. That when you are faithful, you are faithful to do what is true and right and good. And so, so I'm quite convinced that when John is saying that, that Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth, he didn't just pull that phrase out of thin air, but just like the rest of the verse, he's pointing back to Old Testament truths about God and about God's presence in his people. He's applying them all to Jesus, saying Jesus now is God in our midst, and he is dwelling among us. I mean, we have the question of, of why did Jesus come and dwell among us? Why did he come and dwell among us? Well, let me share a story, and then we'll come back to answer that question more specifically. I don't know about you, but I, I've had a few church experiences through my life um, that, that are really special and really memorable. And one of the really special churches I've been to is called Londale Community Church. It's down in kind of inner city Chicago. I was there back in 2001, went back again a few years later with Shelley. Um, it was a really neat church that's in a, a pretty rough area of town. And they have a pastor there named Wayne Gordon. Wayne Gordon moved there back in 1970. He was a very young man then. And God has used Wayne Gordon and Lawndale Community Church to literally transform this community through the gospel and just in very practical ways there. When Wayne Gordon moved in, everyone was telling him, you can't move there, Wayne. You can't move there. Even, his, even other Christians, even his mentors are saying, you cannot move there. He wanted to do ministry there. But they were saying, okay, just commute in. Um, live over here in this nicer neighborhood. Just go in there when you need to do ministry. Then you can go back home where it's safer. But Wayne Gordon said, no, I need to live there if I'm going to be ministering to those people there. And so he moved in there. Right around the corner from his apartment, there was a liquor store. They had the nickname Bucket of Blood because of the frequency with which people were shot or stabbed in that liquor store. In his first three years living in Lawndale, um, his, his apartment was broken into ten different times. Now, he got married, and as you can probably imagine, his in-laws uh, were not super excited about their daughter living in a place like this. And it wasn't a help that, that when his parents-in-law decided to come visit them for the first time, it was the day after they got home from their honeymoon, they went out to church together, they, they went out to brunch together, they came back, the apartment had been broken into. Two TVs stolen, stereo stolen, a bunch of other stuff stolen. Didn't do a whole lot to ease the fears of his new in-laws. But he knew that in order to minister to the people most effectively, he had to go live there. Yes, it was dangerous. Yes, it cost them quite a bit of money to replace all the stuff that was getting stolen. But something really interesting began to happen over time. People began to trust him. And people in those neighborhoods don't trust just anyone because, I mean, they've been taken advantage of many times. They, they don't really trust people who just come in and then leave quickly, even if they're coming in offering aid. But the fact that Wayne Gordon went there and stayed there for the long haul, he's still there ministering now. The fact that he is doing that has built so much trust. I mean, to the point where, where people in that neighborhood, after a few years, began defending him. If they, one time they saw someone uh, breaking into his car, trying to just strip the whole car, and they stopped the guy because they knew Wayne and they liked him. They respected him. And this respect and this trust and this influence built more and more and more. And I mean, Lawndale Community Church now is much more than just a, a church with some nice church services. I mean, it has uh, so many different services they offer. Them. I mean, all kinds of different things. They literally, God has transformed the community through the ministry of, of this man in this church. 
But I don't think this would have happened to nearly the extent that it did if Wayne Gordon did not choose to go live there and dwell there for the long haul. If he just commuted in from the ministry and then went back home, it wouldn't have worked as well. If he was just there for a few years and saw it as a stepping stone to something bigger and greater somewhere else with more fame and notoriety, it wouldn't have worked as well. He's been there for the long haul and God used him very powerfully. Same way with Jesus. Jesus came here. He didn't just swoop in here and one day and then the next day he went and died for us and then the next day he went back to heaven. He was here for pretty much the long haul, 33 years. That's quite a while to step off your heavenly throne and come here. So we come back to the question of why did Jesus dwell among us? Well, I think one of the reasons is to demonstrate God's love for us. There's only so much that you can do to demonstrate love if you're only around someone a little tiny bit. For Wayne Gordon, one of the supreme ways he could demonstrate love and care for the neighborhood and the people there was to live there with them. Same with Jesus. I mean, Jesus could talk all he wants about how much he loves people. But by living among people for 33 years, he demonstrated time and time again. So he came to demonstrate God's love, and we have many accounts of that in Scripture. Jesus came to dwell among us also so that we could identify with him, to help us identify with him. Because you know what? It's hard to identify with God, isn't it? I mean, God is completely different than we are. But when God came to earth in human form, it helps us to identify more with him because he faced many of the same things that we face. There were times I'm sure he was hungry, times he was thirsty, times he was tired, probably times that he was sick and not feeling well, times that he was tempted. We can relate a lot better with him now that he has come in human form to dwell among us for an extended period of time. This last week I was reading Sports Illustrated. It's, it's a magazine I enjoy reading, and I was reading this article about Peyton Manning. And I want to read you an excerpt from it. I was very impressed as I'm reading this article about how Peyton Manning, I mean quarterback for the, um, for the Denver Broncos, about to break major records in quarterbacking, he writes handwritten notes to people all the time. He gets all this mail. He has people who go through his mail and sort through it. And I mean, he responds in handwriting to a lot of these letters. And he had neck surgery, four neck surgeries to be exact. A couple of years ago, his career was threatened. I mean, the future viability of his just neck was threatened. And he says it's really interesting to see how people with neck injuries gravitate to him more. Now, listen to what he says here. He said, you know what? Sometimes he doesn't just write letters. He says, I cold call them sometimes. I block my number, and they don't answer, so then I have to call back at night. They think it's a prank call, which makes sense. I mean, if Peyton Manning, if someone, if you pick up the phone when it's ringing and it says, hey, this is Peyton Manning, I mean, are you going to believe him? No, probably not. But, um, but he says, they think it's a prank call, but after that, you just take a moment and listen. I've always done that, but it is a little different this year. Many of the voices on the other end are struggling with neck injuries. I have to be careful about giving them medical advice, but these people are hurting, and I was able to overcome the same thing. I tell them these are my symptoms, and these are the doctors I saw. So you see that now, I mean, Peyton Manning, so often pro athletes get put up on a pedestal. I mean, treated as essentially superhuman, like they don't deal with the same thing as we do. But you look at Peyton Manning, I mean, he's dealing with this career-threatening neck injury that may have radically altered his life in a very negative way. He had all these surgeries, he went through it, and now so many people 
who have similar types of neck injuries are able to relate to him in a way that they never could before. Same with Jesus and what he experienced when he came to this earth. We're able to relate to him much better. Now finally, and one final reason why God, Jesus came to dwell among us is for him to identify with us. Because now, as he came in the form of a human being, he experienced what we experienced. Over in Hebrews chapter 4, we see that we do not have a high priest, meaning Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. And so we see here that that he identifies with us more because he has been tempted. God himself cannot be tempted. But when Jesus was here in human form, he experienced temptation so he can relate better to us. And this is especially important in terms of his death on the cross because if Jesus wasn't fully human, he would not be able to be our full representative to pay the penalty we deserve for our sins. So Jesus came to dwell among us so that he could identify with us so that he could pay the death penalty we deserve. Now, when I think about Jesus dwelling among us, God in human form, I think, I kind of wish that he was still here now. Wouldn't that be nice? Like when you wonder, okay, what would Jesus do here? You just kind of turn to him and, Jesus, what would you do here? What do you think I should do in this circumstance? What, what do you think, what decision should I make here? Jesus, it's been a rough day. Can you give me a listening ear? I mean, that would be so nice, wouldn't it? We don't have Jesus here with us physically at this time. He was here once. He will be in the future, but not now. He has given us his Holy Spirit, though, to be our guide, to be our comforter. But we also have the promise that one day we will be in his presence with him dwelling among us again. This word skenao, for dwelling, is a relatively rare term in the New Testament. One of the other places we see it is in Revelation chapter 21, talking about the end of time when there are the new heavens and the new earth. And it says there, uh, it's God speaking. He says, Now the dwelling of God, the tabernacle, tabernacling of God, is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. You see, we look forward to that time through faith in Christ, and we are going to once again be in, physically in his presence with him dwelling among us, we as his people, and him as our God. And we look forward to that time, even as we also look back and look at the time that Jesus first came as God with us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were willing to come and dwell among us to be the penalty for our sin. And Lord, even in the midst of all that, you also gave us an example of how we ought to live. And I pray that as we continue to journey through this Christmas season, that we will be focused on who you are and on the amazingness of the reality that you came from your heavenly throne to this earth to be with us because you were not only with us, but you were for us. You wanted to love us. You, you, you wanted to save us, Lord, and you accomplished those things. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.